Welcome to the Extra Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing. This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel wherever you go that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. of our food system provides the roots of our culture. Without soil, our modern lifestyle would cease to exist. Though we can criticize the ways that cheap food production destroys our soil and health, this message is lost when a family can't put food on the table. With the lowest cost of food in any other industrialized country and the costliest healthcare system in the world, the United States falls woefully short of embracing the importance of equitable and sustainable local food agriculture. It's impossible to understand the true value of food until you can understand the true value of land. And really, how do you put an accurate price tag on land? We discuss these issues of soil, culture, the farm bill, equitable food distribution, and the lexicon of sustainability in today's episode, the third and final dispatch from the recent Slow Money National Gathering, where we investigate ways to make local food more accessible. In the first half of today's episode, you'll hear from a panel with world-renowned agricultural poet laureate Wendell Berry, Representative Shelley Pingree of the U.S. House of Representatives, and Greg Fisher, the mayor of Louisville, talking about the Farm Bill and the ways that we value land. Then we'll hear a brief segment from a town hall meeting on culture with farmer and author Elliot Coldman, Gary Naveham, a MacArthur Fellow and author who is often termed the father of the local food movement in the U.S., Elizabeth Candelario, co-director of Demeter, and Narendra Varma of Our Table Cooperative. Then we hear a keynote address from Douglas Gayton on the Lexicon of Sustainability, a project where he and his colleagues are traveling across North America to find the stories and see the faces of local food, developing the vocabulary of a sustainable culture and food system. You're listening to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Justin Ritchie. And I'm Seth Moser-Katz. You're listening to episode number 86. Let's jump right in and hear from Wendell Berry. food economy, in my mind, has always been the first step toward a local economy because the only effective defense of a locality against the global economy is a local economy. The global economy is a lot older than its name. It goes back to about 1492, and its purpose has always been to take out of any locality anywhere everything that was valuable, including more and more the brightest young people. The phrase that uh, Woody used in his opening remarks this morning that 
caught my attention. It was a shared risk. And Mary, a while ago, used the word cooperation. And these are the key concepts, I think. Either we are of the market or we are of the community. And the local economy effort is an effort to shift from an economy based on competition in which the strongest take the most to a cooperative economy in which the risks and the benefits are democratically shared. And I'll just give you an example of what I'm talking about, an easy one. If you are a person of the market and you have farmland to rent, you rent it at a set price, the market price, the grower takes over and whatever happens, he owes you the money. At the Land Institute, I met a fine old farmer, Tom Brown. He was a retired farmer. He had his land to rent and he rented it on the shares. He rented it for 50% of whatever the grower made. You see, this is shared risk. It's sharing fate. This is the community principle. If the grower made money, Tom Brown made money. If the grower lost money, Tom Brown lost money. And it was a risk he took in honor of a fine principle. We've had a beautiful uh, partnership to really try to figure out this journey together. First off, you know, a local food economy is the most natural thing that can possibly happen in your community. And as I took office about four years ago, there was a lot of disconnects and a lot of talk about it. It was something that was so natural to come together that if we could help in any way with city government, we wanted to do that. I'm a uh, business person that just happens to be mayor, so I was interested in the supply and demand aspect behind this because a lot of people say they want more, but the question is, where does it come from? And are the people producing it able to make a living over a long period of time so that we can ensure that future supply? I mean, if that basic thing is not happening, we got a problem (laughs) because it's unsustainable. And from a city standpoint, what we want is something that's natural and authentic so that when people live in our community or visit our community, they will say, wow, there's some uniqueness to that place. I want to live there. I want to go back there. I want to brag about it. I want to start my business. So from a mayor's standpoint, it's the most natural thing to do to put a highlight on what is unique to your particular place. When we did this survey, we found that everybody from every socioeconomic level in the city supported local food. Why? One, they wanted to help their local businesses. So the perspective that the farmer is a business, that to me was a breakthrough. And then the second was they just thought local food is healthier for us and for the planet at the same time. On top of that, and I'll close with this, we've had this unexpected ally appear. And this is one of our food groups that's been around for a long time in Kentucky. 
and hopefully you will have the opportunity to enjoy it while you're here. And this food group is called Bourbon. Okay? <laughs> bourbon is hot. We've created a word called bourbonism. And <laughs> bourbonism is the act of visiting Kentucky to enjoy bourbon and local food. So this puts, yeah. So bourbon is an agricultural product. 95% of the world's bourbon comes from Kentucky and the other 5% is counterfeit. So stay away from that. <laughs> but so seriously now we're developing a 52 week a year tourism experience around bourbon that then becomes agriculturally and rural based as well. So it increases the highlight and opportunity for us to discuss the whole local food movement along with this bourbon tourism. So while it might seem kind of amusing, it's been extraordinarily helpful and is going to be part of us figuring out the demand and supply chain here. And moderation in all things. <laughs> Shelley, uh, I believe you're going to talk about Washington and Maine. You've been a very, very active for a long time in issues of local food, so we're anxious to hear your perspectives. Well, thank you. I did think that you promised me when I sat on the panel that I could just listen to Wendell Berry and nod yes, and that was my entire job. So I'm honored to be here with everyone and to all of you who are thinking about how to cultivate and support what I think is an incredibly important part, both of our culture and our economic issues in this country. It's challenging to sit up here as an elected official because already we know that there are huge problems with policy, the Farm Bill, the USDA, you know, all of the things that we worry about forming policy in ways that just haven't worked out for our food systems. So a lot of the issues that we have in our food system are really related to long-term policy that Wendell Berry and so many others speak so eloquently about, and things like the Farm Bill that have become misguided instruments as opposed to helpful instruments to local food, to regional farming, to all the things that we care so much about, getting young farmers engaged in the system. It's been going in the wrong direction. When I came to Congress six years ago and we were working on the Farm Bill, I wrote a title to the bill called the Local Farms, Foods, and Jobs Act because of all the things everyone's talking about here, and I thought we needed to get back on that focus and divert some of the resources that were going to big commodities that were going in the wrong direction back into supporting the very things that we have here, whether it's getting young people able to get into the business of farming, traditional farmers to stay there or upgrade their systems or become value-added producers, to move some of the commodity money to crop insurance for the diversified farmer or helping people with the challenges that they face, making sure that school lunch programs could buy more local food. You know, it's an endless list, all things that you know and care about. So my primary effort has been on the federal level to figure out how we make some changes in the Farm Bill. Some of the things that were in my title got incorporated into the Farm Bill. We're already on the next round trying to see if we can make the next Farm Bill more palatable. And I luckily sit on the Agriculture Appropriations Committee, so now I'm working on how do we make sure those funds really go to the right places and the rules get written in the right way, like Food Safety Modernization Act, which you heard Joel talk about yesterday, which can be a huge impediment to some of these local efforts and small farmers. Wendell, do you want to pick up on the farm bill? Well, I agree that the policy problems are huge because most of our agenda isn't on the agenda of the government. Right. And uh, I just wanted to mention that there is a 50-year farm bill that is an attempt to address the problems of agriculture. 
toxicity, soil erosion, and the destruction of rural communities and the cultures of husbandry. And these are all related problems. The purpose of the 50-year farm bill is to invert the ratio of 80% annuals to 20% perennials in 50 years to 80% perennials and 20% annuals. The understanding is that the toxicity and destructiveness, the erosiveness of industrial agriculture is directly related to the destruction of the rural communities because the big machines, the continuous tillage, and the continuous application of ever larger amounts of toxic chemicals, those things replace the people who used to be there. Now replacing the large machines and the toxic chemicals with competent people is not something that can happen overnight, but it needs to be started, and I think the people here have started it. If I can just make a quick comment, so I don't want to give too pretty of a picture. I don't know if we can stop this train fast enough to fix this huge problem. I really don't know if we can stop the problems with agriculture before all of our soil is gone, before the toxics are too serious in our environment, in our personal health, if the carbon issues are too great with global warming. I mean, we have a gigantic problem in front of us. It's just this is the wrong time to stop fighting it, but I don't know if we can fix it. Right, and I think our food system is a metaphor for what we see on a larger basis happening in our country, and I'm just a mayor. But as you see the massive amount of inequality in our country right now and the accumulation of wealth with a very small percentage of people, that's a metaphor to me for what's happening to our land in the country right now. Things are happening faster to it than we can understand or want to understand, perhaps, the long-term consequences for it, for the benefit of a few mass producers to make more money over the benefit of hundreds of thousands or or millions of small and medium-sized farmers. Oftentimes, we get caught in this vortex of speed that's happening in the world right now. It's so difficult sometimes to step back and say, Really, what is happening with our food, with our education systems, with the ideas of what our country is, that it's hard to get clarity around a lot of these issues. And so oftentimes you have to slow down to speed up. And I think our food system is a perfect example of that. Uh, I want to talk about the either intended or unintended consequences of bad food that we live with on a city level and we're living with on a federal basis right now, and that's the cost of unhealthy people. Obesity, the obesity crisis that's taking place in our country right now, and it's tied into our whole health system and health insurance system and Affordable Care Act. We are developing our human bodies in an unsustainable way, given a food system based on convenience and speed rather than long-term sustainability for ourselves. So we're a long way 
from having to worry about the increased price of local food overwhelming our ability to operate our economy. But I can tell you there's all types of indicators on the other side of unhealthy living. The uh, cheap food policy has been a disaster because the true accounting has never been made for one thing. We don't know what the true cost of food is because we don't know what the true cost of land is. I've tried to argue, and, and I'm going to continue to try to argue, that the true value of land is infinite. You can't put a price on it. But to say that food is too cheap is true. It's too cheap. On the other hand, you have to notice there are people who can't afford it cheap as it is. Yeah. These are two points that are very lively in the discussion that's going on in Louisville. How to get farmers well enough paid and how to get the poor people well enough fed. So that is simply a description of the complexity of the problems that we face. It's going to take a long time to reconcile these differences and solve the problems. And we may be too slow. I'm glad you brought that up because that's a reality and we've all thought of that. We don't have a right to know whether we're too slow or not. What we're required to do is do our best to solve the problems, that's all. So the only thing I would add, going back to the policies of the Farm Bill and the long-term policies of cheap food, a lot of times farmers in my state who mostly receive no subsidies for anything, there's very little, almost no commodities grown there, say, if I could just have a level playing field, I'd be happy. You don't have to give me a lot more, just take it away from the other guys. And that is... You know, the issues around cheap corn, cheap commodities that have become part of the complexity of this food system have caused a lot of these cheap food health problems that we're experiencing today. You know, I feel like my meager opportunity has been to try to pull a little bit of that funding back into kind of the real food that farmers are growing every day. If we could move some of that and make it easier for people of diminished means to buy more of that healthy food, we would go a long ways, and we're trying to do that. Same with getting local and healthy food in the school lunch program. So the kids start out with, you know, kale and beets and carrots on their plate and say, wow, this is pretty darn good, and go home and tell their parents, say, let's go get some more of this. It just changes our eating habits and our food habits. This is critically important. It's a huge political debate. Just a reminder that 85% of the farm bill goes to SNAP benefits, or what was called food stamps. So understand that a big part of that is how we attempt to subsidize people in the country who really are struggling to make ends meet, are going hungry, can't get healthy food for their kids. That is the challenge of our time. Well, as we look at some of the things we can do locally, we have to unlearn many of these aspects we think are conventional wisdom about food. A lot of kids in urban areas are come from high-stress environments in terms of 67% of our kids here in our 100,000 public school system are on free and reduced lunch programs. They're not going home to Ozzie and Harriet. They're constantly 
thinking about where's my meal going to come from? How do I study? Why? Where's my father? These type of things. So we've got to teach kids to slow down so that they can really reflect and learn on a lot of these things. So ask yourself in your communities, how are we starting with our youngest citizens and teaching them about nutrition? We should also uh, remind ourselves that there's not just regulatory issues and policy on the food side, there's the investing side. There are plenty of things that need to be fixed to make it possible for the kind of local investing we want to do to flourish. So. Absolutely. Wendell, you want to say something? I'll say a little something. I think it's important to raise another question, and that is where you're going to place your hope. I think it's wrong right now to place much hope in the government. <laughs> I mean, when you... Now, I'm not talking about despair, but when you have sense going up against a lot of money, you've got to be careful what you do with your hope. And where your hope is validated is in the good examples at ground level here. So what keeps me going is the knowledge of good examples of good work that can be found and examined and understood, that tells you that what you want is possible. Then you carry that hope to the government <laughs> and do as it can do, and then go home and build up the ground of hope again. We also have to keep alive the importance of things that are not accountable, like neighborliness. I went down a list of intangibles that I know have an economic consequence. The knowledge that you have of your place that you've acquired over years of experience is not measurable. It's not quantifiable and it isn't transferable in the market. And yet it has an economic consequence. It has an economic worth. The knowledge that your herd of cattle have of your place is not quantifiable and not transferable on the market, but it has an economic value. You sell your herd of big cows and go and buy in a bunch of strangers, you're going to replace some gates and fix some fence. <laughs> it will have an economic consequence. If you have neighbors who work with you and help you and keep you out of that cash economy, that's neighborliness. It's a virtue. It's not accountable, not transferable, not marketable, and it has an economic consequence. If you farm on the right scale and know your animals, you'll sympathize with them. And sympathy has no market value, but it has an economic <laughs> consequence. So it's that, I think, more than anything, is what we're entrusted to keep alive. We need, again, to think about intangibles. People in a poor community need access to money, of course, and the things that money can buy, but they need a better community, too. And let me give you an example. A man I knew once was head of a small country bank over in Owen County. And a man came in, a young man, wanting a loan. And I think he wanted to buy a farm. And he was a stranger to the head of the bank. 
And the head of the bank asked him, do you have any collateral? No. Do you have any credit record? No. You have anybody who'd go on your note? No. Let me see your hands. He turned his hands over and they were calloused. And he got his loan. (laughs) Well, you see, there's a community principle operating there that would be careful economically, monetarily, but would also take a chance. So a community is a place where people do build up reputations and do get known to one another and do support one another. And it seems to me that you work at the cash end of the problem, but you've also got to work at the, at the community end of the problem. And everywhere, country and city, we're deep in community failure right now. And there isn't any place to get where it's any better. You are listening to the Action Environmentalists. You just heard Wendell Berry, Shelley Pengree, and Greg Fisher talking about land and the farm bill. Next up, you'll hear from Elliot Coleman, Gary Napan, Elizabeth Candelario, and Neandra Varma with some brief thoughts about food and culture. I'd also like to introduce this idea of culture as being soil. Culture as being what we are all kind of rooted in, trying to accomplish all of our individual work in the world. And we all know if your soil is not very healthy, you can have the greatest seeds or rootstock in the world. It's, it's not going to get you as far as you want to get. And yet you can influence the health of the soil. You can contribute to culture. You can see it degrade over time. You can see it improve over time. And so for all of us, I think, in framing our comments, it was helpful to have that, that metaphor in mind, culture as, as the soil that we ourselves are all planted in, trying to thrive. Since we're talking about soil, I want to talk about the culture of small farmers who have their fingers in the soil. Forty years ago, we had all wanted to make the world a better place to live in. And we all thought that agriculture was the obvious place to start. But we encountered what had, for some reason, come to be called conventional agriculture. It said that our dreams were impossible. And they defended their dogma with an almost religious fervor. Every time they told us to be realistic, they were telling us to compromise our ideals. We had no intention of doing that. We were up against an irrational dogma, and all of us had set out to overthrow it. Well, over the past 40 years, all of us had proved without question that not only are the methods of organic farming far superior, but so is the quality of the produce. We had all been successfully pursuing a biological agriculture because chemical agriculture was obviously illogical. 
How many of you realize that a leading pesticide in the early 20th century was lead arsenate? It didn't take much reasoning 40 years ago for these old hippies to see that it was somewhat illogical to spread lead and arsenic on food before eating it. <laughs> so the agri-culture of doing solutions instead of problems is alive and well today and charting new paths. I think what my life's work is about and what my community is about is finding ways to create a multicultural component of collaboration, collaborative conservation, restoration of food chains. I call myself a food chain restorationist as a job title. And I think every individual culture, ethnic group, or faith-based community already knows how to collaborate within it, but that we're really lousy at that. And so a lot of my work is about that healing of the urban-rural divide. We're working on job creation for ecological restoration of pollinator soil and water in farm and ranch lands. Well, I've spent most of my career in the wine business, but about 15 years ago, I was working at a winery in Sonoma County. We'd been working on a creek restoration project on a riparian corridor that bisects the estate with the intention of restoring the steelhead and salmon habitat that had been absolutely devastated by over a century of bad agricultural practices. We really figured that we needed to carry that environmental ethic through to the vineyards and the rest of the estate by getting organic certified. So we hired a consultant to help us get there. In working with him, he was quite inspirational. He challenged us not just to get organic, but to get our biodynamic certification. I think our first response upon hearing that was, bio what? But in talking with us about biodynamic farming, he challenged us to think about our farm differently. We still avoided all those farm inputs that aren't allowed in organic certification like synthetic fertilizers and pesticides. But we also started viewing the farm as an integrated whole, a closed system, a living organism, if you will, self-contained, self-sustaining, able to meet its own needs out of the farm system itself. Fertility could be addressed by bringing animals onto the farm, much to the delight, actually, of those of us who work there and certainly our winery visitors. Insectaries were built that created welcoming environments for all the good bugs, who then repaid us by taking care of the bad bugs. We stopped worrying about weeds and planted cover crops, mustards and legumes between rows of vines that not only added nitrogen to the soil, but turned what was once brown and dull springtime vineyard into beautiful meadows of green and gold. We started to grow food crops that all the farm workers and the winery staff could take home to enjoy with their families. Monoculture turned to polyculture, which was quite a concept in the wine industry. 
This perspective of an integrated whole, where we saw not just the individual components of the farm, but also how they existed in relationship to each other, changed our approach to problem solving and allowed us to realize the strength and resiliency that exists in dynamic natural systems, where all the parts are in relationship to each other and are integral to the success of the whole. I've been working with Demeter now for seven years, and I have the distinct pleasure of working with all different kinds of farms all over the country. I've often thought about how those principles of biodynamic can be applied not just to farms, but how we work. Is there a way to view our business through this holistic lens? Are there examples of ways that we can integrate our business dealings so that the whole succeeds where the individual components might not have? The chief agronomist for Lumberg Family Farms, the number one organic rice producer in the US, recently converted his family farm, 250 acres, to biodynamic, and is now eagerly working with their farmers, who represent more than 13,000 acres of rice farms in California. Imagine, imagine the environmental impact of moving that much acreage into biodynamic production. We even have farmers and processors who are receiving funding from this project from Whole Foods Small Producer Loan Program, further solidifying the retailer's interest in the success of these products once they're on store shelves. It really works, and it's working because all of these people are acting in concert to achieve shared values for healthy food, healthy farms, healthy people, and a healthy planet. Hi, so my name is Narendra, and I am a recovering fast money investor. Um, I have a background in high tech, even though I did study humanities in college. Uh, high tech paid better. I was a beneficiary of the internet boom in the go-go 90s, and quite unexpectedly at a very young age, suddenly had this financial windfall and didn't quite know what to do with it because I had no experience with these things. So my first response for both my wife and I were to sort of go to the experts, which was Wall Street at the time, and, and try and talk to people and financial planners and people of that ilk and ask them what to do. And their advice is what we initially took and sort of walked down this path of, of fast investing. And I quit my day job and basically became a gambler because that is exactly what their advice was. It was exciting in the way that gambling is exciting, but I like to tell people that Las Vegas is a lot more fun because the booze is free. <laughs> but it was not at all satisfying in any kind of meaningful way. And it was certainly not contributing to building a better future for either myself or my family or my community. And it was a completely selfish activity. And over time, my wife and I kind of came to the realization that really the, uh, the food system at some level embodies many of the problems that we face as a society and as a species, but that the solutions to many of these problems can also be found in the food system. And as people who really like food, I really like eating. You know, that sort of had a huge draw. And this idea that food and agriculture can act as healers was very powerful to us. Also at the time was um, attending a permaculture course. And at the beginning of the course, you know, we went around the room talking about who we were and, and why we were there. And one gentleman got up and he said, it is time to unwind the hypocrisy of our lives. 
And that phrase really stuck with me <laughs> because, of course, it pointed to the, this essential truth that at some level we are the problem. Mm. You know, we're sitting on our wallets over here when we're trying to talk about investing, and we really need to get off those wallets. So my wife and I, of course, had been moving towards this sort of slow money investment philosophy after reading Woody's book and meeting and, and things like that, but in really little tiny dribs and drabs. It was still a part of this kind of larger portfolio allocation strategy, but it wasn't very satisfying. We liked the relationships we were building, but it really didn't feel like a complete thing. And we really were looking for a more hands-on approach. The other thing that sort of permaculture design taught me was this idea of, of looking at what sort of surpluses that each of us can offer to our communities and to the world. And this idea that comes from biomimicry of surplus as akin to pollution. And it really struck me that at some level what we had a surplus of was time, money, and energy, and love. And these things, if we kept them to ourselves, were simply polluting. But if we shared them, and put them to work, they could be very positive. And Carlo Petrini at the last Slow Money Conference talked about manure in the same terms. So we decided to go whole hog and bet the farm, but we didn't have a farm. So we started to look for one and founded this cooperative that I'll talk about in a little bit. To me, it's abundantly clear that externalities are at the core of the problem and that closing loops has to be the core of the solution. The ancient Greeks used to use a word called krematistika to describe an extractive economy that depletes social and natural capital and translates it into financial capital. And that really is what we have today in our contemporary society. And of course, Aristotle used the word economia or economics is what we, sort of the English version of that, to describe a more closed loop household economy that builds natural and social capital. So sort of this theme of closing loops. It also is abundantly clear to me that the problems are systemic. You know, these are not small little things. I feel very strongly that the solutions have to look at systems as a whole, not that they have to be one size fits all, but that you have to look at the whole system. And one of the core principles of systems design that my friend Marco Evangelisti taught me was that the values of a system determine its structure and that the structure of a system determines its behavior. So if you think of culture as our collective consciousness and our patterns of behavior, then in order to change culture, we have to start with an appropriate set of values first. We actually have to put some stakes in the ground. And I'm really thankful for Joel Salatin yesterday actually coming up with his 10 points of absolute values to live by. And then we have to not only set down these values, but we also have to create a new mythology, a new set of stories around them. And then we need to build the structures that embody those values. That's where the investment part of it comes in. And only then can we expect the desired behavioral patterns. For us personally, the stories or values that we were interested in really centered around the need to minimize or completely eliminate externalities in order to steward and regenerate land, the people, and our communities. Now that was all very well and good, but of course we needed to build the structures that embodied those values, so we took all of the resources that we had and in true gambler fashion, bet them all on this project that we call Our Table. And we developed a multi-stakeholder cooperative that models a closed-loop food economy at a community scale 
but brings the entire community to that proverbial table. And the idea was that this was a structure that would mirror the land management ethic that we had in mind, which was really based on biodynamic principles, which Elizabeth mentioned really thinks of the farm and even the community of farms as a single organism. And I look at that as a, very much as a fractal pattern. I think you can look at it at a micro scale or at a macro scale and the same principles apply. But I want to leave you with one thought. Wendell Berry spoke of the um, unspeakable intimacy between humans and what we call the natural world. This implied separation or dualism, I think, is at the core of many of our problems. And so I would like you to, to sort of think about the relationship between yourselves, the plants and animals you eat, the land that they grow on, and the people who coax them from the earth. And I think you'll agree that the essence of this relationship is communion. And it's really communion, which I think is at the center of the culture that we must create together. This theme of healing land, healing people, they're not separate themes. And so much of our outward debate seems to often be focused on waiting, waiting for something to kind of come from the outside and give a catalyst for that to happen. I think this is a great example of healing what might seem like intractable social division by working on the land together, healing what might seem like intractable challenges with the land by bringing people together. It's, it's a wonderful and instead of an either or. We have this sort of miss conceived notion in our society today that technology will save us. Mm. This is from a former software executive, yeah, mind you. Yeah, recovering. <laughs> um, I'm here to tell you that it's not going to. Now, Elliot <laughs> has invented a better mousetrap. That's the kind of technology we can get behind. It's for voles, which is um, really very successful. But I met a lady at this conference yesterday who was telling me about a technology conference that she came from where they would, the keynote speaker was talking about trillions of little sensors, most of which would be on our bodies. And I remember thinking to myself, I already have millions of sensors on my body. <laughs> it's called my skin. You know, I don't need somebody else's sensors, and I don't want them. So I'm with Wendell Berry as a, as a sort of technology Luddite at some level. But uh, what, what I'm trying to say is that the, the technology that we have at our disposal today can certainly be used for good. But more often than not, it allows us so much power power that we really as a culture and as a people and as a species really don't have the capacity to manage and control, that we end up falling into the trap of using it in a poor way. If anyone's ever sat behind the controls of a large earth moving machine or a bulldozer, I don't care how wise you are, you're gonna move dirt. Because those things are made for that and when you sit in that thing, you feel like God. Mm. So I am very wary of this idea of mm. giving human beings who I don't think we're very that evolved yet really, or if we'll ever be, I don't know, that kind of power. I think we have to be very, very careful with this idea that technology is going to save us. Mm -hmm. A couple of days ago, I had a visit from an old friend named Henning Semsdorf, who's an old German biodynamic farmer on Lopez Island. And he proceeded to sort of show me this beautiful image listing the four essential elements, you know, earth, fire, water, and air. And then he also showed this human being as a part of this image as the quinta essentio, the fifth element. And I took exception to this, and I said, you know, how can you say that we're different or separate, and that maybe this is uh, uh, sort of at the core of, of our problems? And we had this lovely conversation where he sort of convinced me, mostly because he's got gray hair and is significantly wiser than I am, that at some level we human beings are separate from nature because of our consciousness. 
but it is only partial knowledge that makes us think that we are separate. And our life quest really is to complete that loop of knowledge. And when we do, we realize that we are an essential part of the natural system and that we close that loop and that we're not separate. So I, I found that very telling. I guess I would end with love. I think in all of its embodiments, certainly in terms of relationships and buying food, but deeper than that, making those connections, I think is the key. Mm -hmm. Where my heart goes. Wendell Berry, absolutely, that's where I came. My father calls himself a crank and is one when it comes to some things. Anyone, anything with a screen, speedboats, the fact that people have freed themselves of physical work and now go to fitness centers, the idea of a vacation, shopping, and so on. So if crankiness is what brings about an effort like slow money, Tilth, American Farmland Trust, or Kentucky's Community Farm Alliance, or the many save our land, farms, forests, families, etc., then count me in. Replacing the large machines and the toxic chemicals with competent people is not something that can happen overnight. But it needs to be started, and I think the people here have started it. I'm lucky enough to come from a state where the things you're hearing about in Kentucky, and I think we're seeing everywhere else, are happening in spades in my state. Um, Maine has, I think, maybe the largest proportion of CSAs of any state in the country. We are a state where the average age of our farmers going down, the amount of land under cultivation is going up, and the markets are booming. Um, I think we've produced 50% more food in the last decade than we did in the decade before. So we are really a changing place. We need to divest from the economic system and financial system that are pushing us towards a disaster, socially and environmentally. And we need to mobilize not 1%, not 10%, but 100% of our financial resources to build the world we want to live in. My favorite part was the entrepreneur showcases this morning. I thought the entrepreneurs this year were great. There is demand in the food deserts for this beautiful food, and our farmers are ready. You need a sustainable system. So we're going to share it. And we were there to write the check out of our retirement fund to get them going. And by the way, we hadn't even heard of slow money yet. Anybody that was at this conference was able to vote here in person after hearing them give their pitches. But then there were options to vote online, so buy a Bitcoin online. The Bitcoin is a crowdfunding source for the slow money organization and it brought a few thousand people together to raise a hundred thousand dollars for three lucky individuals and so a few thousand people went online and listened to uh all the entrepreneurs give their pitch and then voted for who they thought was the best or, or needed the money the most the two second place winners were silt and new roots there's a pretty golden moment when my friend and farmer, Rosanna Bowman, uh, won the Bitcoin contest. We're going to give $60,000 to the winner, and that winner is Bowman. So, and she's going to be taking home $60,000 to start her GMO-free feed bill. Farmers are sometimes now just quaint to people, but in this place, they're revered and they're valued, not just with words, but now with money. And that really matters. Let's hear it for them. Thank you all so much for a great conference. There my hand falls. 
This is episode number 86 of the Extra Environmentalist, our final dispatch from the latest Slow Money National Gathering. Next up, you'll hear Douglas Gayton about the lexicon of sustainability, describing the people and vocabulary of a sustainable culture and food system. I want you to imagine that I walk up to you on the street. You've never seen me before. I tell you to close your eyes because I'm going to put something in your mouth. You tell me no. But that's our food system. It's totally opaque. And every bite we take of the food that we buy comes from people, in most cases, that we don't know. And the ingredients in that food is of unknown origin because our food system is entirely opaque. Hello, I'm Douglas Gayton, and our project is the Lexicon of Sustainability. Five years ago, we began asking ourselves, why is it so hard for people to actually buy according to their values when they go to the store? And equally, why is it so hard for producers who grow things, who make things, who have values that they put into those products that they make many times with their own hands, why is it so hard for them to convey those messages, those values, to the people that they would love to have find and buy their food? So the challenges exist on both sides. Consumers who have absolutely no idea how their food system works and producers who have a very difficult time messaging to those consumers about their values. We thought, what if we try to get at those root ideas, those root terms, those words? Because as you know, everything begins with words. The most transgressive thing you could possibly do is teach somebody a new word. It's like a thought bomb. Because if you have a word, you can form a sentence. You can have a conversation. You can shift somebody's way of thinking, and you can actually fix our crappy food system. So we thought, let's start with the most difficult word you could ever start with, a word that has no value, sustainability. Because you can buy sustainable shoes, sustainable toothpaste. I hope nobody has a sustainable toothpaste startup company here. Sustainable soda. It's a word that, in many cases, has absolutely no value. And I thought, why don't we start with that term? Why don't we try to take that term back? And it started us on a five-year journey around the United States to figure out what is the language of values that people use when they grow food. What is the lexicon of sustainability? I go to see Running Squirrel, a Native American forager. I ask him what sustainability is, he doesn't know. But I spend a day with him, we're out foraging for herbs, and I watch him, and I say, who taught you how to do this? He said, my grandmother taught me, and her aunt. It's always been taught to us. And I said, what is the basic principle of this? He said, well, you know, you never pick all of anything. You always leave a little bit behind, so it will seed, and it will bring something back the next year. So you always know you can come back and find something. 
I asked this woman what sustainability is. Six years farming without ever compromising her values, sticking to her guns in an increasingly industrialized food system. I asked her what sustainability is, and she says it's very simple. It's survivability. A young man in Olympia, Washington, reads in school about something called organic food. Decides he's going to try it, realizes he can't afford it, realizes that food does come from the ground. Joins an organization in his community to learn how to start farms and to start urban gardens. In the first year, they did 150 gardens in backyards in Olympia, Washington. Peter Garica, a crabber in New Orleans, he survived Katrina. He survived the BP oil spill. He might have something to say about what sustainability is because he's lived through it and suffered because of it. I wanted to find a way to take all those amazing ideas, all those amazing experiences, those insights, those solutions, and convey all that amazing knowledge that they had. So I began taking their words and writing them down. And it was a project that began, I would say, very naively, as most things do. But for five years, we've gone around the United States asking people to explain their principles of sustainability. Five years, hundreds and hundreds of stories. Amazing stories of solutions all around us. As a project, we're about words. And usually, at this point, there'll be people in the audience who will be thinking to themselves, it's just words. But you know, there's power in words. Undeniable power. Words are so powerful, they can actually change the way a food system works. And I don't even need to belabor the point, I'll just give you two quick examples. A dairyman in Ohio decides that he actually doesn't want to give his dairy cows growth hormones. Not only that, but he decides to put it on the label and he gets sued. Not for what's in his milk, but for what's not in it. Not for what he's doing, but for what he's trying to educate. Goes all the way to Superior Court. He wins, and as you know, the company that made that product sold it off a few years later. And now consumers have a choice to buy milk according to their values, to choose whether they want to buy milk raised one way or another way. When people have information, when people are allowed to make their food system just a little bit less opaque, they have an impact in the marketplace and they change their food system. The first time I heard about cage-free eggs, I had no idea what it meant, but it sounded kind of cool. I think it would be better for the chicken, though I didn't really know how chickens were raised. It might be a better tasting egg, though I didn't know why. So I bought cage-free eggs. I was given an opportunity, even a small one, to buy according to my values, and I did. And I wasn't alone, it turned out. And consumers across the country had a dramatic impact on how an entire industry worked. That journey's not over yet, because as we know, that cage-free term ended up being a weasel word, as did free-range. Five years from now, we might even say that pasture-raised poultry is a weasel word as well. It's evolutionary, as a language is, as a movement is, as a shift in consciousness is. 
But it begins with words. So terms like true cost accounting are important. What is the real cost of cheap food? How can we convey to consumers that buying the cheapest food at the grocery store isn't actually the best deal? How could we explain such a complicated principle as external costs? Alexander Hamilton created the first industrial park in the United States. It's on the Passaic River, New Jersey. 1790s. First Colt weapons were manufactured there. First industrial looms were there. First locomotives were manufactured there. They harnessed the energy of that waterway to great effect. And all of the waste, all of those costs were externalized. They just dumped it back in the same river. So it's no mystery that one of our first EPA Superfund sites was on that very same river. We can kick the can down the road, but at some point the can stops. How do we explain that when our food system is so complicated? That's the challenge that we face. How do we educate people so that they can make purchases according to their values? What does a local food system look like? Most of you in this room already know that because that's why you're here. We asked Jessica Prentice, who actually coined the term locavore in this market, to show us what it looked like. And she gathered all of the people that she had bought from, not only that week, but for the past 10 years, all of the relationships that she had built with the people that were her local food producers. It's a principle I'm going to get to in a little bit, this idea that food and culture really cannot be taken apart. They're part of the same thing. We're all looking to find ways to explain what local food is. It's a tremendous and exciting story that's happening across the country. When I, when I travel, people always say to me, Douglas, where is the center of this food movement? And I always say there isn't one. That's the incredible beauty of it, is that nobody is waiting for the USDA or the FDA to solve or fix our crappy food system, and they've realized that they probably need to do it themselves. This idea of food and culture really being so closely aligned that you really can't think of one without the other. There are a lot of principles when you start to look at local food systems. This idea of actually knowing where your food comes from. People always ask me, what's the most important term in your project? And I say local, and I say, I already know that. I say, well, then apply that to your life. If you, if you buy food that's local, even take that a step further, actually figure out who actually grows your food, who actually makes the food that you're eating lessen that distance between the people that make your food and the people in your own family. Eating in season, these are all basic principles that we all know. Once we start living more locally, we begin to realize how it, in many cases, not possible. One of the challenges that you have is we, in centralizing almost every aspect of our food system, we have completely dismantled all the infrastructure that made local economies, local food-based economies at least, possible. Infrastructure is amazing when it works and how it can actually rekindle people's memories of a food culture that is quickly disappearing all around us. We can also get technical about things. Even if you want to grow some things locally, sometimes you can't. We don't have the technology to resuscitate a lot of industries that are so critical to a local food system, and it's a big challenge. I went to go see Temple Grandin, 
who many people would say is the grand architect of much of what has helped consolidate our meat industry. And I asked her, I said, you know, you've architected so many systems that have helped this consolidation. How would you undo that? Since there's this trend now to want to relocalize, how could you do that differently? And she said there was one mobile slaughterhouse in the entire United States, it was on Lopez Island in Washington, where a land trust got together to save the ranchers on the Lopez Islands, and they actually took a, a truck and actually built a slaughterhouse with inspectors inside of a truck that goes from farm to farm. If they hadn't done that, ranching probably on these islands would no longer have existed. Of all the images in our project, this is probably the one that gets circulated most. And I spoke to the people from this land trust six months ago, and they said, we rue the day that we ever spoke to you. <laughs> because they're constantly bombarded by people wanting to know how they did it. Such is the desire of people wanting to find ways to reintroduce that vital infrastructure in every aspect of their food system. This is a slaughterhouse in Carrollton, Georgia, that restaurants got together with ranchers, and reopened old slaughterhouse in the area. It's not an unusual story. It was four or five years ago. It's a story that's repeating itself again and again. It's exciting. That's why I say there is no center to our new food system. It's happening everywhere, and it's happening at the same time. You can also find fruit in your own yard or in your neighbors. This is an image I did about a group called Fallen Fruit where it actually is mapping places around the United States where food exists in public places. I remember when we did this in an alley in Los Angeles, a woman stopped and asked us what we were doing with all those oranges. And we said we were picking them. She said, but then what are you going to do with them? We said, we're going to eat them. She was completely baffled <laughs> that oranges came from trees <laughs> that you could just pick and eat. That's how disassociated we are with our food. And that's why it's so vital. I'm always amazed when I talk to people who are involved in local food systems because they always say it's all about one thing. I never knew that I'd be so excited about doing schedules for delivery trucks, that logistics would be so sexy. But it is. These food hubs are completely invisible in most communities, and yet they are actually that vital cog that's necessary for so many of these great ideas that people are going to be talking about over the next three days to actually work. How does that great food of values find an audience? Who's going to be its champion? When companies get bigger, they practice cooperative distribution. This is also in Eugene, Oregon. Of a bunch of organic producers that felt so strongly about what they were doing and realized we can't learn from the big boys. We can consolidate all of our shipping so that we can cut those costs completely down to their bare minimum and create our own form of cooperative distribution. This is what a local food system looks like. It's not super flashy. It's the nitty-gritty. It is, as I've been told countless times, it's logistics, and logistics are sexy. But it's also CSAs. This is a CSA in Boulder, Colorado, where the woman decided that her CSA wasn't going to be a box that you would get at a pickup spot, but you had to come and get it every Wednesday. You had to make your own box. And by doing that, inevitably you met the other 169 families that made up this CSA, 
And it became like a Wednesday party every day from 3 to 8 p.m., which I witnessed. It was extraordinary. What a single farm with a single CSA had done to transform so many people's lives. That's what local food systems look like when they're starting, when people are all joining together and trying to build those networks that have been so effectively dismantled over the last three generations. Food systems also, when they're transformative, are also exclusionary if they're not built the right way. Just like food miles is not a really very ultimately accurate description, food deserts also have the same problem. They're ultimately not useful, but they're powerful as an introductory concept for someone. Altgeld Gardens is where Barack Obama cut his teeth when they say he was a community organizer in Chicago. He was here at the oldest housing project in the U.S., I think also still one of the largest. Thousands and thousands of people in an area where the closest food is six or seven miles away. To be truly transformative, local food systems also need to be equitable for everyone. And there's a movement afoot. How do you introduce healthy food in economically challenged areas? Well, one way to do that is with corner stores. Where you take corner stores, this one of, of all places is in Portland, Oregon, a housing project there, which had a liquor store, which they transformed into a corner store to give people better health options. It might be difficult to explain true cost accounting to people. It might be difficult to explain the real cost of cheap food. It might be difficult to explain that we have the lowest food costs in the industrial world and also the highest healthcare costs. It might be difficult to explain the connection between diabetes and other health-related illnesses and people's food. But that doesn't mean that we don't need to make an equitable system and change the way we have food access in this country, even in urban areas which are under the greatest challenge to food security. We talk about local markets. We talk about things when they're healthier, when they're saner, when they're more socially responsible, they're local. But the reality is that not everything, as you know, can be local. People, when they buy things local, are given the opportunity to buy according to values. But how do you do that for things that aren't local? The principle of the connected market. This idea that everything comes from someplace, and if we have transparency in a food system, if we can actually know, even food that comes from far away, how it's produced, and if we're given the opportunity to vote as consumers, that we can also transform food economies, not just where we live, but in developing areas of the country and food producing areas of the country that we'll never actually be able to visit ourselves. But as consumers, we can actually vote to support those ideas. These are things that you already know. This power of values is something that we see when we have fair trade and direct trade products. These labelies and certification are one of the key mechanisms that we have to be value-conscious consumers. We talk about organics, and even that is very, very powerful. However, when we traveled through the South, we went and saw 20 or 30 different farmers and ranchers, and about three or four days in, my assistant says, you know, none of these people you're photographing are organic. Just want you to know that. And I had the most amazing people putting together our list of who we should be documenting. I said, you're out of your mind. You're just crazy. Five days in, he says, these people aren't organic. Six days in, I finally say, okay. I'm in Birmingham, Alabama. 
talking to a farmer, an urban farm there. I said, I know this is kind of crazy. I'm just going to ask you, so you're certified organic, right? And he said, oh, you must be from California. <laughs> they have a principle down there. Local first, certification second. There is this tension between local, between certifications. They're all important. Certifications are important in many, many ways. And I'm certainly not here to get into a discussion about the validity of organic certification. But it all comes from people being informed, of people demanding a transparent food system, of wanting information that they can use to make value-based decisions. You know, it's interesting, that first image I showed, organic, a Warren Weber, an organic farmer in Bolinas, California, which is in Northern California, just over the Golden Gate Bridge, oldest continuously certified farm in California. And he said, the best thing that ever happened for our food system was industrialization of agriculture. He said, because it forced farmers to actually decide whether they were going to be organic, whether they were going to be land and water stewards or not. So it's interesting how certification works and how it forces people to take sides as they create a value system. When people ask me themes that are going to be important in the coming year, obviously an image that we did with Bill and Nicolette Nyman about antibiotics and meat, consumers are now becoming aware, as they were with RBST in their milk, that maybe they might not want to have meat that came from animals that were fed a diet of sub-therapeutic antibiotics just because it made them get fatter quicker. We can also talk about traceability. The fact that people often don't know where their fish comes from. How many people in this audience have had red snapper in the last 12 months? Raise your hands. Sad to say that you probably didn't. Oceana did a study last year. Over 70% of red snapper actually isn't red snapper. And it's because we don't have traceability. We don't have, we don't have ways to actually capture what is caught and tag it and track it from that moment until when it ends up in your supermarket or in a restaurant. But increasingly, fishermen are realizing that there's a better, higher value for that fish if it actually can be traceable. So this is an image we did with Norpak in Hawaii where they actually do tag fish right, when, right from when it comes off the boat to when it ends up in a store. They did it voluntarily because they're not waiting for the USDA or the FDA to fix our food system. They see the writing on the wall, and they're taking matters into their own hands. We're also seeing that with other, other aspects of our food chain. Consumers actually wanting to know not only what fish they're eating, but and even with grain, what its identity is, what grain it is, when it was grown, how it was harvested, how it was milled. This principle of identity preserved is a principle I did with uh, Bob Klein, who I think is here tonight, from Community Grains is a principle that you're going to see increasingly on the packaging of products. Because consumers actually, when given an opportunity to buy something that has information, will inevitably do that. So we get all these stories all over the country, literally hundreds and hundreds of images. What do we do with them? From the very beginning, we've always thought we have one advantage over Monsanto which is we can take this story to places where they can never go. We can be nimble, we can be street level, and we can operate by putting ideas in people's hands. 
All people want is the information. All people want are tools. They know what to do with them. You just give it to them and get out of the way. Amazing and powerful, but it proves a point. We started in, of all places, Ames, Iowa, because somebody told me that our project would never work in Iowa. We took 75 kids around the state on a bus. We showed them what their local food system looked like, who their producers were, and what their practices were. And the kids then turned those into images. And those images looked like this. This is a six-year-old who had never operated a camera explaining what aquaponics was. The images were so powerful that we actually rented the metro station underneath the USDA in Washington, D.C. So that they would walk by it every day on the way to work. <laughs> Which then resulted in the kids being brought to Washington, D.C. to go on Capitol Hill and to explain their ideas, to go meet with the USDA and other figures from the Department of Agriculture. And it was a very powerful and transformative experience. We now do Project Localize all over the United States. And Alice Waters, such a pivotal figure for so many people, creating a movement that starts in vacant plots of land outside of school classrooms. What could be more revolutionary than actually getting kids to eat something that they grew that came from the ground? An amazing story. I wanted to really close by talking about the fact that ultimately, while it's a lot of terms and principles and ideas, logistics, inevitably just people. It's what brought you all to Louisville, obviously. Average age of American farmer, tried at this point to say, 57, I heard now it's 58. This is an image I did at Stone Barns in New York, which is working very hard to train a next generation of farmers. I don't want to say the odds are against them, but it's certainly challenging. One of those challenges that they face is that young farmers can't get on the land. Big challenge. I did an image in Oregon of young farmers who had been approached by some investors who had taken their money out of Wall Street who wanted to help young farmers get onto the land and worked out an economic scheme to basically back them on their own farms. When the investors pulled up in their car, the young farmers yelled out, here come the farm fairies. <laughs> and it's a story that's repeating. This is like the mobile slaughterhouse image that we make. This is an image that people are always asking for. They always want to be connected to these young farmers to hear their story of how, of, like, of how they did it. Because young farmers just want a chance to get onto the land, their land, to build up that soil that's their soil. That's the big challenge that they face. This is a project in Salinas, California, where they take workers that had only worked in conventional agriculture and they teach them how to be organic farmers. They get them organically certified, they give them an acre, they give them all the tools, they buy everything they grow, they design their logos for them, they do all their accounting. The next year they give them more land, next year more land. Suddenly five years in they're asked to pay rents that are so exorbitant they get up and they leave. And that land is now cleared for the next generation of farmers that are being trained. An entire army of farmers across California are all being trained by Alba in Salinas, California. A farm incubator that's creating an entire new generation of organic farmers. And lastly, it's about the fact that 
something that has never ceased to amaze me, which is that every farmer I've ever met is an educator. <laughs> every single one. I'm even amazed sometimes when I go onto farms and they've actually built like classrooms with diagrams because so often do they have to dedicate time for schools and people coming through who want to be re-educated about all these things that many people knew only three or four generations ago. This is an urban farm called City Roots in Columbia, South Carolina. While I was on that farm, which had biointensive practices, even had aquaculture, they were big devotees of Will Allen, they had a steady stream of people that kept on coming through asking for explanations of how food is grown, asking those really important questions that we all wonder about. This is an image about grass farming by this guy named Joel Salatin. Joel's an amazing, amazing individual who has changed, I cannot tell you how many farmers and ranchers I've met who will start a sentence by saying, well, the way that Joel does it, and he's really got people to understand the power in a blade of grass. But that isn't the most amazing experience that I had with Joel. Even though I've made so many images of Joel, the most powerful experience I had with Joel was when he invited me into his kitchen to have breakfast with him. And he and his wife made me breakfast and I looked at the counter and I saw a calculator. But it wasn't any kind of calculator. It was a calculator that had the numbers worn off. And then it had a Sharpie and the numbers from the Sharpie were worn off so a new layer of Sharpie numbers are written there. And Joel, who I think by that time was convinced that I had no idea what I was doing, that I was just some yokel taking a million pictures, he says, now what are you taking a picture of? And I said, farming. Because you can't really farm and actually make it as a farmer if you're not a businessman. And that's what farming looks like to me. Real farming. Not just talking about it, not the fashion of it, but actual real farming. And I want to thank you very much for allowing me to speak tonight. So this wraps up our slow money coverage. It's given us time over the last few episodes to put together a lot of the highlights from slow money and play them. It you know, took up a little bit more of our podcast than I thought it would. And it's the first time that we've ever 
done this kind of coverage from an event. So thank you as listeners for sticking with us through all the slow money coverage. If you're not into sustainable food, then, well, it's been a a rough patch on the extra (laughs) environmentalists for you. But if you are, then you're probably pretty happy. We are moving on in the next episode to talk about permaculture. And we've also been using this time of all this material to figure out our broader strategy of production on our show. And I think we've we've got some things figured out now that we'll be able to run quite a bit slicker to hopefully get to a better place in terms of putting out episodes on a more regular basis in the near future. So that's been really exciting and, and great to do. But at the end of the Slow Money Conference, and since we are at the end of our Slow Money coverage, it's very timely to mention that at the end of the Slow Money Conference, the founder of Slow Money and, and the guy who wrote the book, Woody Tash, he gave a little talk and several times he mentioned Jeremy Grantham, who is a relatively famous investor who also has been very successful and acknowledges and understands many of the issues that are involved with limits to growth, peak oil, climate change, et cetera. So I'll just play a very brief clip from Woody's talk here. There's a lot of stuff to think about about when you, when you start thinking about money differently. Since the constant theme is uh, fiduciaries, one of the world's leading fiduciaries, a man named Jeremy Grantham. He is one of the world's leading money managers. His firm, Grantham Mayo Van Outerloo, has something like $120 billion under management. When he writes stuff, it, it, it is noticed immediately in the entire financial community. And when I do my... Um, my little slow money stump speech, if, if I was in a new crowd and talking to in a, in a new audience, I would probably have a slide from The Economist magazine from the summer of 2009, had a picture, a graphic artist a depiction of a picture of a, a textbook that said modern economic theory and the textbook was melting into the desk. This was, this was in the summer of 2009 when there was, you know, probably as much uncertainty as there had ever been in 50 years about financial markets. And that cover was there because Jeremy Grantham had written a newsletter two months before in his newsletter that said the efficient market hypothesis is no longer valid. So, um, you know, finance, it's kind of impenetrable in some ways, and it's just pathetically obvious in others, right? Um, Something is wrong. Well, I gave a talk, uh, this is several years ago, and it was to a very young, very uh, crowd of environmental activists, basically. And so... I was wondering how the financial part of the thing would even be interpreted. I go off the stage, and a man comes up to me and says, Hi, I'm Jeremy Grantham. We're shaking hands. I said, Am I in trouble? <laughs> and, and he said, No. He said, I agreed with most of what you said, and I liked your book. And so I'm thinking, what? Did I, you know, did I hear that right? He's probably the only money manager, global money manager at that scale, who's talking about no-till agriculture and running out of potassium and limits to agriculture. And he basically said to me while we were talking, these are the, the nuggets. Well, like I always say, Thomas, Thomas Malthus was right. He just got the arithmetic wrong. Now, I'm not making this up. He is saying, actually, he is total E.F. Schumacher, small is beautiful, except he manages $120 billion, and guess what? There is a disconnect between the two parts of his brain. <laughs> he, he is allowed to, you know, I think when you have $120 billion under management, he's allowed to have a disconnect, but you in this room are not allowed to have a disconnect. <laughs> I'm not sure where the cut point is, but it's about $100 billion, so... <laughs> So with Jeremy Grantham being mentioned so many times, I thought I would pull up Jeremy's latest quarterly letter here. And I'll just pull this out of the stack of, you know, crinkled papers that I've got over here. Man, there's Justin, so it sounds like you're pulling it out of the trash can. Yeah, it was not in the trash can. It's just in all those crinkled papers. So in his quarterly newsletter, Jeremy Grantham titles his most recent quarterly letter, 
Are we the stranded asset? And so he has a whole portion in his newsletter that I recommend you read, and we'll just read a brief portion of it now. And it's called The Race of Our Lives Updated, Malthusians versus Cornucopians. And this is a theme we get back into so many times in our show. We have different perspectives on technology and will we be able to solve our environmental, energy, climate challenges? And I'll just read from this first paragraph from Jeremy's newsletter. With the environmental damage reports steadily coming in worse than expected, with early reports from Jim Hansen in the 70s and Al Gore in the 90s, each damned in their day as loony pessimists, have by now on average been found to be optimistic and with technology and alternatives steadily coming in better than forecast the very close race between malthusians and cornucopians continues the pessimists aka the malthusians seem determined to believe that nothing can save us and their case is disturbingly well reasoned they point out that our complex economy is tuned to be energy intensive and needs a very high energy return on energy expended to sustain itself early oil wells could deliver well over 100 times energy expended obtaining the oil and today traditional oil wells are around 30 to 1. The pessimists believe a ratio of 8 to 1 is needed to merely maintain what we have to educate our engineers to build and maintain the roads and you get their point which is a reasonable one I think but although onshore wind is a respectable 8 to 1 solar is still only 4 to 1 and when energy is invested to smooth out their delivery to the grid their ratios have thus they argue that although solar and wind can replace odds and ends of demand which is better than a kick in the pants they can never deliver an energy surplus back to the grid to power dense cities in our industrial system they brush off the claims of optimists as superficial wishful thinking. Rubbish the optimists, aka the cornucopians, who argue that technology and redesign are everything, making homes and other buildings as energy efficient as possible, using existing technology, introducing new lightweight electric cars, reducing waste everywhere, can reduce energy intensity by a quarter to a half over 30 years from today's needs. This would take the formerly required ratio of 8 to 1 to run society down to between 4 to 1 and 6 to 1, and then steadily increasing technology of solar and wind generation and storage can meet the target in 30 years and we can live happily ever after. And when you look at the details from, say, the Rocky Mountain Institute, their assertions also look very plausible. They bat aside the arguments of the pessimists as the ignorant protests of technophobes. There appears to be no middle ground, yet that is where I find myself. And with substantial creative tension being dragged from one side to the other as I read their latest salvos. And you can read those latest salvos in Jeremy Grantham's newsletter. But this definitely summarizes many of the debates we have on our show. And I'll just come to some of Jeremy Grantham's closing words in his article here. And he says, as I struggle to decide which of these two powerful opposing ideas is winning, I have begun to think it comes down to two very different takes on us humans. The optimists are accurately describing what we are capable of if we put our best foot forward. And the pessimists are describing what they expect from us humans given what they see as our rather dismal record. I am, though, sustained by the hope that the pessimists are underestimating the degree to which we can scale back and bear deprivations as we did in World War II, especially in the UK, where even potatoes and bread were rationed by the end. And yet the social system stayed intact and many people were happier than they had been, the result of being given an unavoidable collective challenge. I do think that when times get much tougher, most will rise to the occasion. And you never know your luck. Even Congress might pitch in. Will it be enough? For today, anyway, until I read something else convincing, I side with the optimists. 
But as I say, it is going to be a very close race. So then in his newsletter, he jumps into the problem of feeding our peak population and how with climate change, the issues of food scarcity are becoming much worse and the rate of soil erosion is becoming quite drastic. And I won't go through all the details here because we only have so long on the Extra Environmentalist because most people don't want to listen to a four-hour episode where we read everything, but I definitely recommend you read it. And it plays right into the themes that we were discussing on today's show of the farm bill and soil in sustainable food systems. But the very last line that Jeremy has in his newsletter is that one of the worst problems may be switching to sustainable agriculture is also likely to cause at least a temporary drop in production. And delay may mean we lose our current ability to produce a food surplus. And though today we waste nearly 50% of all food, the great majority of us 7 billion are either well-fed or overfed. And with few exceptions, only bad distribution of income as well as food causes any starvation. And in the future, as the population grows and erosion and weather problems increase, only surplus agricultural output will decrease, making it increasingly painful to make the transition to sustainable farming. Yet, failure to move towards sustainable and less resource-intensive agriculture will mean many poorer countries, particularly those with rapid increases in population, will begin to starve. And there are some indications that in parts of North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, this process has already started. The crowds marching into Tahrir Square in the Arab Spring, for example, were apparently chanting, bread, freedom, justice, bread, freedom, justice, but bread, they chanted first. So Seth, where do you fall? Are you an optimist? Are you a cornucopian? Or are you a pessimist, a Malthusian? Uh, Well, Justin, having been on this show for 86 episodes and having interviewed some of the people that we have interviewed on this show, it's hard not to be both an optimist and a pessimist because the amount of creativity that lies in the human race is just staggering. The ways that humans can cope with tragedy and with hardship and with being pressed in so many ways is just incredible. And I think that's one of the strongest parts of humanity is their ability to adapt to all sorts of situations and all sorts of hard circumstances. And this ability has helped humanity over over the whole span of its existence. And I think that this is no different. Humans have lived without oil for so many generations and the move away from oil or move away from our reliance on this very, very precious resource will just be just another chapter in human's history. There's a little blip on the radar of the human story. You know, we've survived with it and we'll be able to survive without it again. It won't be as fancy. We won't have the same kind of fancy technology that is sustainable on an oil-rich diet. But we will have hopefully some of the the leavings of this fantastic era in the human chapter. We probably will have some of the technology. Hopefully that has survived. Maybe we can pretend to have some radio that'll that'll keep going. So you can hear your favorite version of the extra environmentalist. You know, Justin and I have discussed broadcasting over radio. We have radio stations and CB radio has been around for forever. And you can bounce that stuff off the moon and get to the other side of the world. I think what also another point that we do talk about on this show over and over again is preparing people for that eventual transition. Because whether you're a pessimist or an optimist, we're still heading that direction. Whether or not you think it's 30 years or 100 years we have left of oil on this planet, 
there's still going to be an end to this non-renewable resource. And whether or not we can transition into a sustainable one, such as like wind or tidal energy or something like that, we're still not going to have the same kind of power that oil gives us. There's Right now, there's nothing that's going to be able to fly an airplane across the Atlantic on wind energy. I mean, right now there's nothing like that, but who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what kind of amazing technological innovation will come along? But I think that being able to be prepared to deal with these inevitable withdrawals in technology, with these inevitable withdrawals in, in power all the time, I think that's what this show is all about, is getting people ready for that mindset, being able to deal with this loss or maintain a different kind of technology, a happy mindset to make your way through and to be happy that you're surviving with less. Because that's really the, the secret is being able to be happy with what you have. And also realizing that a lot of the expectations we carry in the Western developed world are so manufactured to a point of the consumer culture feeding on our insecurities that drive us to purchase so many things and drive our self-worth from our possessions rather than our friends and family and vocations and so on. And so, you know, the more you can lift that veil of illusion, then suddenly all of those issues don't seem as terribly scary because you realize how incredibly fortunate we are to live in this technologically advanced society. And despite its distributional issues and its political issues and so on, it really is incredible what we've been able to achieve technologically. But I think where it gets back into the whole issue of the cornucopians versus the Malthusians is that the cornucopians extrapolate that out and they say, well, look at what we've achieved technologically. So therefore, there's no problem that we can't overcome with technology. And the Malthusians look at that technology and they say it's not going to come anywhere close to, to solving this issue. And so it's always fun to open that debate channel because it really brings out the deepest assumptions about technology and the economy and the environment in people. Yeah, I would love to say that technology is going to save us. And it's it's fun to think about ways that we can be saved by technology. But, you know, the thing that we come to again and again is we rely heavily on a resource that is a non-renewable one. It doesn't make itself fast enough for us to keep using it, especially as we increase the population on this planet to numbers that are there's no way to sustain without it. It kind of sets you up for a uh, for a little trap going forward, you know. How do you support a population without this resource that you use to get up to this population? What goes away? What What do you do? And I think that's something that humanity is going to have to deal with as it happens. Or you know, we can start thinking about it now and maybe soften that blow just a tiny bit more, so that we don't have to deal with the the huge amount of hunger and riots in Tahrir Square going forward. Yeah, which is absolutely why Jeremy Grantham titled his whole piece, Are We the Stranded Asset? Are we going to end up as a civilization and as a population amount stranded from the amount of population and civilization that we've created? Will we be able to sustain that? And right now it's a very open question. And so we will see how that plays out over the future. But speaking about the assumptions that people 
are revealed upon when they get into this discussion. The Mad Max movie coming out recently, the reboot of the Mad Max series, Imagining a World Without Oil, where people fight it out to get those last bits of oil. We were listening to this interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye, the science guy, on the question of, is Mad Max our future? And there are a few really key clips I wanted to play here from that. Humans, through their actions, turn landscapes into desert is based on what's happening right now. Yes. So it's another apocalyptic view. Yeah, of but that's a different issue. The, the issue of turning landscapes into desert is not one because you're running out of water. It's because then you don't have you're not producing food on that landscape. So well, there's no water can, to produce on which by which to produce the food. By means of. Plants got to have the water. No, I got you. But but it's not like in the world there's no water for Well, you. but That's there where the two tribes in the north have caused trouble, which is the premise of the bit. So you go somewhere else. You find an ocean. Well, but and, and you're stuck, on, you're well, stuck in the, the thing. So this is your reality. Desalinate the water. Assuming that they don't have so forgive me for being sources of water. Optimistic. Forgive yeah. me for being optimistic here. See, I can't That's think that way. humor. I can't think that way. I'm saying to myself, we go into space, lasso a comet, bring it down, create an ocean out of it, bada bing! The idea that we'll run out of gasoline is mm, sort of true. The bad news, everybody, is we will not run out of fossil fuels. There is so much coal and tar sand and oil shale, tar shale sand goo everywhere that we will never run out. That is the bad news because people are just burning it wait, and burning wait, it. Wait, wait, Bill? Mm -hmm. Earth? takes up a finite volume in no, the I mean, universe. It's, it's, so what do you mean we'll never run out? Well, centuries. In the day when we have 100 billion people trying to fit on the earth and everyone wants to live in a city that's full of energy, you, you tell me we'll just never run out? Uh, for intents and practical intents and purposes, yeah, we'll never run out. Okay. There'll be a lot more trouble so before we'll, we, we run won't out. run out and any time scale that anyone is saying or thinking yeah, we're going to run out. Just walking at the vehicles in this movie, they're mm -hmm. contemporary enough. Well, you say this is bad news, but why do we want to decrease our dependence on fossil fuels? Because we only have one problem, and that's climate change. And that's caused by people burning this stuff and making taking the ancient carbon and putting it in the atmosphere as carbon dioxide. You know what I wonder? Everyone's talking about climate change today. We might have possibly could have talked about it 100 years ago, but we didn't. There was, a different, sort of did. there was a different list of things people were worried about for the end of the world, yeah. like like uh, tuberculosis or uh, is there enough food to feed people? They didn't really know how, mm -hmm. how advanced farming would become. Revolution. Agricultural revolution. So, so I wonder, Bill, Bring it on. is Mad Max far enough into the future so that they have a different list of what to worry about? Uh, and, and climate change is somehow... The other guy with his axe, the chrome-plated <laughs> side, is one of them. And well, they, we, where do they get the tires? What all the how tires? How do we prevent getting into a Mad Max situation? What's the science that we currently have that's going to reduce our dependency on fossil fuels? So, Sally... Overpopulation is going to be a huge problem, and reducing that and increasing overall education levels will help. But what, what, what she's what Sally's really getting at is what invention of the future would preclude conflict being derived from access to oil and from water? Is it a desalination plant? Uh, well, is it three things for, for the water? Is it access to solar power, to geothermal power, so, to uh, and will we know, know how three to, things I want? Can we lasso comets to give us water at uh, at a whim? Do we? Populate another planet that is not that d so, uh, dust bowl. -y. Three things I want. Oh, so along so, with so, mine, so, that, so let's here, not so, forget wait, to look at the wait, bottom wait. of the ocean and explore it. Who knows what's to be discovered <laughs> down there? So, so, so you get a Mad Max scenario when people walking around saying, 
Why are we spending our money in space when we have our problems here on oh, Earth? Oh, my goodness. Without knowing that the solutions to those problems on Earth may be derived from space the innovations of the full population engaged in research and discovery. So it's really interesting where someone who, you know, speaks about science and represents the idea of science for so many people in the public eye saying things like, you know, we'll never run out of water because we can just lasso in an asteroid. And I think that that's really the unspoken often idea that sits behind what many people perceive to be any kind of environmental limit or challenge is that, oh, it's not really an issue because we could always just pull in some kind of asteroid. Yeah, I mean, it's always an option, right? Just just go out to space and get an asteroid and then get all the resources from that thing, maybe some water. So, yeah, I mean, I think that's why the extra environmentalist likes to take the alternative perspective to that viewpoint many times in the conversations we cover and the discussions we have. But, you know, at the same time, the world is changing and behaviors are changing. And I'll just link to one story from the U.S. Census Bureau, and they released a report earlier this May that biking to work has increased 60% over the last decade in U.S. cities, even though cyclists still account for only just six-tenths of a percent of all commuters, many of the nation's largest cities have more than doubled their rates since 2000. So I know it looks small and it doesn't seem like much at the moment, but biking and biker culture is becoming much more accepted. And so in the future, if we face oil limits that are quite severe, going from a city that maybe has 2% of its people biking to work to 20% is a much simpler thing to imagine than going from 0% to 20%, right? And that ability to scale it is much more viable. Well, haven't you been riding your bike to work, Justin? Yeah, yeah. I ride my bike around quite a bit. I usually actually take the bus to work personally, but anytime that I'm not making a trip to work, it's almost always by bike because it's just the way to get around here in Vancouver, ideally, especially in the summer when the weather's so nice. Yeah, and I know that I definitely bike to work during the summertime, but that is a definitely a different kind of journey than the one in Vancouver. It is so very humid here. Yeah. Absolutely. I would not want to be biking as much in Durham. And it takes us back into the content of our show today and and the talks that we played from Slow Money, where Douglas Gayton was talking about this lexicon of sustainability, where he's trying to build this vocabulary and turning the things that people are doing to build this sustainable food culture into images. And so the cultural images and symbols that we are using to communicate and that are the mainstream accepted forms of society are definitely shifting. They're much more unstable than they were 10 or 20 years ago. And that's because times and the environment and our energy systems are necessitating that change. So I can definitely imagine in 10 or 20 more years, those seeds of this more sustainable culture that are being sowed now will become much more dominant. Ideas like slow money won't seem as fringe or crazy in 10 or 20 years, even though now I think if most people, you mentioned slow money to them, they would come away like slow money. I want fast money. Why would I want slow money? That makes <laughs> Why would no I sense. want my money to be slow? Yeah. I go to fast food restaurants. I want my, my money to be fast. <laughs> yeah, definitely. No, it's it's very true, Justin, because the ideas that we talk a lot about, you know, slow money, degrowth, all these ideas are very out of the ordinary 
in the mainstream media. And if you ever talk to somebody who's never heard of these things before, they have no idea why you would want to degrow your economy. I think the other day I was talking about degrowth to somebody at my workplace and they said, what does degrowth mean? Why would I want to have an end of growth? You know, and I was like, well, you know, national resources are soon to run out eventually and you, know, you got to do something when there's no resources to boost a growing economy. And they're like, what? Why would the economy stop growing? Well, you know what I have to say to that. We go into space, lasso a comet, bring it down, create an ocean out of it, bada bing. That's perfect. That's perfect. Let's just wrestle that. Wrestle me some asteroids, as they say in uh, Durham, North Carolina. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think if you bring that up in a a general setting, that's generally a perception that, that people have. So there were a few points during the episode that I really liked. The story about the farmer going into a bank and talking to the banker, and the banker was like, do you have any collateral? And the guy said, no. Do you have any credit record? And the guy said, no. And then he said, do you have a cosigner? He said, no. The banker then looked at his hands and saw they were callous and he got the loan. And I think this really goes into the idea of humans trusting each other, of making a community and a place where these ideas that we talked about during this episode and we talk about during the show can really grow. And I think the idea that humans are all brothers and sisters in this world and should really trust each other goes a long way, especially when the ideas around food and about sharing resources. I think these are things that we really need to think about strongly and be conscious about. Absolutely. And I I loved that story. And it just speaks to the kind of culture around finance that Slow Money is trying to build. So speaking about brotherhood and cultural changes, we have a few people who have really taken that idea to heart and have sent some of their hard-earned dollars into the extra-environmentalists. This is as you know, a free show that we send out to the world. So we rely on your donations to really keep us going and to have the kind of resources to send us to conferences like the Slow Money event and other events that we've been to in the past. And so that's why we're really grateful for Shad from British Columbia in Canada who sent in a donation. We're also really thankful for Kyle in Sacramento. Kyle, thanks so much for for your continued support and listening to the show. And also thanks to Carolina, who is in Sweden. So we're really great to have Swedish listeners not only just listening, but donating your krona to the Extra Environmentalists. We are greatly appreciative of that. We are so very thankful for your donation. We're also thankful to Seymour in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the United States. So thank you to all of our fantastic donors. We couldn't do the show without you. You are the dedicated bunch that keeps us going. And, you know, you stuck with us through our slow slog of very intermittent episodes. And hopefully we're through that. We've been just so focused on getting our video side of our organization up and running. It's just been really tough to focus only on audio. And I think we're finally getting through that whole slog there. So nothing like a whole slog to get you through. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) 
if you too would like to be mentioned on the show as a fantastic donator and have your name read by either Justin or myself, head over to the Extra Environmentalist website at www.extraenvironmentalist.com and click on the right side where the donate button is bright and prominent and we will send you out a t-shirt if you donate over $30. We really appreciate all of our listeners, but those donors really rise to the top in our hearts. If you want to join the conversation, head over to Facebook or Twitter where you can leave us a message over there and we will see it and you can see other people that are commenting and join the conversation and join the tribe. If you want to listen to Extra Environmentalist on Stitcher Radio, that's available as well. And you can find us on the SoundCloud as well. Absolutely. And there's some definite exciting happenings going on and upgrading our web presence. And our next big project that we plan to have some more frequent content for all of our extra environmentalist listeners. So to all of you who've stuck with us through all of this, we're greatly appreciative. Another thing that definitely has slowed down our podcast releases in the last few months has been all the writing I've been doing. I've been doing a lot of academic writing for my PhD at the University of British Columbia. And I just wanted to throw another link into the show notes around a recent journal article that is open access because that's the kind of journal that I prefer to publish in, in the Journal of Environmental Investing. And I was looking at the kinds of income that my university's endowment receives from oil and gas investments and looking at different ways that they could invest their money to substitute for that. And actually, one of the interesting things that I found that I didn't anticipate for it to be quite this competitive with oil and gas holdings and their performance was investments in on-campus energy efficiency. Actually, if the university had taken its money that was in oil and gas holdings and invested it in energy efficiency and reducing energy consumption on campus, they would have been way better off than just continuing to hold oil and gas stocks. And so I'll include a link to that in the show notes so that anyone who is interested in some of my academic writing can check that out. Everybody should check out Justin's academic writing because it's fantastic. I don't know about that, but that was an interesting one to do. Thanks again for listening to The Extra Environmentalist. We are heading into the summertime. Lots of heat and lemonade and barbecues and swimming pools are ahead of us. For all of you in the Northern Hemisphere, get ready for the summertime. Today we're in the race of our lives, and, and right now, in my opinion, it's a very finely balanced race. On one side, historians tell us the current civilization, the first one to be truly global, has all the characteristics of earlier civilizations that failed. Hubris, overconfidence, the reckless use of finite resources, little long-term protection for land and water and other natural assets. With the increased global population and the growing wealth of China, there's already a remarkable pressure on resources, whose prices, including energy and grain, are all up two to four times since 2000. Worse, the climate negatives are proceeding far faster 
than even Jim Hansen predicted in the 1970s. The CO2 count still rises, the climate warms, the weather destabilizes, making farming more precarious. Perhaps most dangerously, we're still losing 1% of our soil every year, even in the US. Compounding this problem, it is now estimated that an increase in the very heavy downpours is a dependable outcome of the increase in water vapor, water vapor in the atmosphere. The worst downpours each year can cause a quarter or more of all erosion. UK scientists estimated two months ago that there will be four times more of these extreme and even dangerous events of heavy downpour, meaning that erosion could double. We will either profoundly change our agricultural ways in the next 50 years, or we will begin to starve. At the very least, food scarcity in poor countries will cause failed states destabilize global politics, as it's doing already in Syria and Egypt. On the good side, we have two remarkable, perhaps undeserved advantages that no earlier civilizations had. First, our fertility rate has dropped beyond Malthus's wildest dreams. Iran and Bangladesh had seven children per woman in 1960. Seven. Today they have 1.6 and 2.2. Remarkable. If fertility stays moderate, it is a potential lifeline. Second, there is an ongoing explosion of technology in renewable energy and energy storage that is making these alternatives to fossil fuels competitive much faster than generally appreciated. In 20 years, solar generation will be far cheaper than fossil fuels. So both advantages and disadvantages are accelerating. We may fail. At best, it will be close, but we can win. On paper, if we lived up to our theoretical capabilities as a species, we would have no problem. But in real life, Homo sapiens, and indeed capitalism, despite all its virtues, are not ideally suited at all to deal with very long-term dangers to our air, soil, and water. Our worst feature, perhaps, is our willingness to protect our vested interests and political beliefs, regardless of long-term costs to society. This has resulted in deliberate attempts to promote more fossil fuel use and protect their subsidies while attacking alternatives. Deliberate programs to confuse the public on the science of climate change, creating doubt where none should exist and in most countries does not. And the bad guys, frankly, have been kicking our asses. They've been at it for 30 years, with huge assets to protect and money to do it, and with considerable cynicism. Whether we approve of it or not, we are engaged in a propaganda war. It is absolutely vital that we environmentalists win this war.
on the next episode of The Extra Environmentalist, our 87th episode, we take a deep dive into the work of permaculture designer and thinker Toby Hemingway. We've had a good 10,000 year run with agriculture. That's been pretty wonderful, but I don't think we're going to be able to do it much longer the way we've been doing it because of the amount of energy that it takes to grow our food and the fact that we don't have productive ecosystems where there is modern agriculture. The way that we handle agriculture now is to clear whatever natural ecosystem is there and then plant corn, wheat, whatever it is. It's annual clear cutting, really. I mean, if you think a clear cut forest is not such a good thing, then the amount of farmland that we clear cut every year just dwarfs the amount of forest that we clear cut. C-SPAN 47, and today we are tuned in live to the General Assembly of the United Nations in New York City, where a group of bureaucrats and representatives from each nation are discussing the ongoing environmental and water crisis in the world. I'm sure the discussions will be as exciting as my narration of them. So to chair the Unsustainable Development Conference, the Master General will take the stand. Hear ye, hear ye, I now convene the 2015 Assembly of United Nations to discuss the climate instability at our Unsustainable Development Conference. And the representative from Algeria now takes the floor. Given C-SPAN 47's excellence in translating Algerian, we will now live translate these comments into English. Thank you, representative, for having me here today. I am very glad to talk to you about my country's opinions on unsustainability. It seems as if we are running out of water and all of our schemes to try to combat energy and renewable resources and climate change, we just need more money. We need more cash so we can use it to come up with new solutions. If only we had more money and investment, we could solve all of these problems. If only there was more money, we could combat the food issues, the people starving all over the world, the hungry, hungry people everywhere. This is unprecedented. There appears to be an extraterrestrial entity uh, materializing at the center of the General Assembly. Greetings, Earthlings. I come to you from Balsamfer, the faraway planet in another galaxy. We have been monitoring your communications for years, and we fear now is the perfect time to intervene. It looks like the um, alien has a proposal in his or her or whatever gender they use on Balsamfer to present to the General Assembly. Let's see how the Master General handles this. Does the gentleman from Algeria yield the floor to the extraterrestrial entity from Balsamfer? Uh, yeah. Yes, I do. Thank you. 
is with great pleasure and happiness that I am here to give you this proposal. We from Belsifer look highly on the people of Earth and want only something you have multitudes of. For all the trees on planet Earth, we will give you unlimited credit and cash flow. Trees are a delicacy on Belsifer. Looks like the General Assembly is huddling and discussing this proposal from the extraterrestrial entity. This is truly unprecedented television here on C-SPAN 47. We will cut to a commercial while the deliberations continue. Americans everywhere are looking up at the gas pump and seeing lower prices. And we all know that as Americans, we're entitled to low gas prices. Happy motoring is part of our culture. Did you buy some environmentally conscious vehicle like a Prius? What the hell was wrong with you? It's time to buy a fucking SUV. Get yourself on the road again. Guzzle that gas. Buy it now. Trade that shit in. Buy an SUV now. Buy, buy, buy. Buy, 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 buy now. Buy so much you can't even stop it. So you want to buy, you want to buy Max out of your credit cards, Max out of your credit cards, buy. New cars, new cars, new cars. Buy, 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 buy. This message brought to you by Generally Motors and a coalition with the American Petroleum people. And we're back here on C-SPAN 47 where this unprecedented scenario is playing out. We are reaching our peak ratings ever as a network. There's now 12 people watching. This is incredible. It appears that most everyone in the General Assembly is ready to accept this proposal. Um, however, there does appear to be uh, a few holdouts and we'll jump into the deliberations as they finalize. What about the oxygen, boys and girls? What are we going to do if we run out of oxygen? Thank you for the gentleman from the Czech Republic. Please have a seat. Thank you for the time. Would anyone like to respond to him? The lady from the United States uh, has the floor. I would like to speak on behalf of the United States and saying that we have actually been entering into secret trade negotiations with these aliens for many years, and our top scientists and corporations have evaluated this proposal and can vouch for its feasibility. We have been developing oxygen machines that are quite costly. They will be very expensive, but we are very willing to take the money that all countries receive from the aliens in exchange for their trees to purchase these oxygen machines. Thus, the point from the gentleman from Czech Republic is completely invalid. We can just purchase these oxygen machines. Thank you. This money will be very necessary for all of the desalination plants we're building in California to deal with the drought and for updating our infrastructure. We need that money, so thank you. I yield my remainder of my time to the gentleman from France who wishes to make a motion to approve the aliens' proposal. I also move we sell all of our trees to the aliens for exchange for unlimited money. We have a proposal on the floor from the gentleman from France. Uh, all in favor, please respond with aye. All opposed? Nay. The motion carries. And here on C-SPAN 47, we've just witnessed the trading of all the Earth's trees to the aliens in exchange for unlimited money. It appears that the world's budget crises have been solved as well as our environmental crises and energy crises. And what an exciting day it's been here on C-SPAN 47. It's not usually as exciting on our channel. We'll end it right there, this historic broadcast that will be watched by all future generations. C-SPAN 47. I'm in tears right now at this moment.
It's so emotional. All world problems solved. It's so amazing to hear the trees being cut down right now. I can hear it.